0: Or at whatwasthatlike.com.
2: Darkcast Network, where the light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Crime Con is going to be in Las Vegas in 2022, and it's going to be super lit. <laughs>
1: We are pretty excited to be able to (laughs) attend again and meet up with some of the folks that we met last year, plus meet some new true crime buddies, hopefully you. That's right. We'll be on
2: Podcast Row with many other great podcasts. Plus, there's going to be tons of sessions, big personalities, and entertainment with plenty of opportunities to
1: meet other like-minded folks. Please join us from April 29th to May 1st. And did we mention it's going to be in Las Vegas? Viva
2: Las Vegas <laughs> tickets are on sale right now. Just go to crimecon.com and be sure to use the code FRUITLOOPS. That's F R U I T
1: L-O-O-P-S, to save 10% and let them know we sent you. That's CrimeCon.com. Use the code Loops. We are so excited to meet you. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 146. Thank you so much for listening. Bienvenidos, bitches, and muy Uh, Fruit <laughs> Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, able-bodied white dudes. Oh, no, 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 no way. Now, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly.
1: And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth and I just happen to be white. It's not our fault, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. <laughs> and we may feature it on a future episode. That's right. Also, our website is Fruitloopspod.com and we
2: use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus,
1: check it out for the different ways that you can support the show. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today, we're talking about the Waddell Buddhist Temple Massacre. It occurred in August of 1991 in Waddell, Arizona, and there were nine victims, including six monks and a nun. Waddell, Arizona. Interesting yeah. place.
2: I yeah. have never <laughs> gone there on purpose. It's <laughs> uh, it's one of those places you go to, I guess we'll stop here for gas or snacks. Yeah, right? yeah,
1: just uh, drive through. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, but before we get into it, how you doing? I'm all right. Uh, you know, COVID's raging, so I'm back in my hall. Mm, <laughs> yes, the old the Omarion, We got the we got the other remix,
2: the Flu Rona. Um, yeah, yeah. The Delta Cron girl. It's just <laughs> hide. It's, it's crazy. Out there. Hide yeah. underground. If you go underground <laughs> and never come out until this calms down, do it. Um, yeah. so I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, yeah. It's been a little bit. Yeah. It's kind of a bummer. Um, I did see you on Zoom today, which was That's really true. nice. We had a,
1: had a, we had a meeting. meeting
2: and that was nice <laughs> yeah. uh, to see your face and your beautiful background. Um, but other than that, we, we really haven't seen each other very much. Yeah. And yeah. it's all Rona's fault. Fuck you, Rona. Um, How are you doing? Well, I'm gr- gr- great. Uh, we are in the home stretch of relocating to Hotlanta. Yeah. <laughs> the great resignation so is real. <laughs> listen, <laughs> listen. Now, I had an exit interview today. Girl, I spilled all the tea. I was very <laughs> honest. Um, <laughs> everybody kept saying, Wendy, don't burn any bridges. And I don't think I did, but I did tell the truth. <laughs> right, right. So, um, you know, <laughs> on to the next chapter, but it, yeah, uh, good it, for it's, you. it's, it's, I'm, I'm excited to go to Atlanta. I'm excited and, for you. Uh, Tyler Perry, if you are listening and you want to <laughs> open up a podcast studio, uh, Fruit Loops is available. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh now we are going to get into some listener letters.
1: Well, hello angels. <sighs> <Yeah>. <sighs> mm-hmm. yeah. Uh-oh,
2: oh I think I hit the again. infinite button again. <laughs>
1: Whoops. Well, hello, angels again. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh
2: Is no. I thought, <laughs> I think so. Okay. I think so. Here's, keep talking. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so we got the sweetest, most heartwarming voicemail from Ty. So uh, I'm going to play it for you.
0: Okay. So I just want to say, Wendy and Beth, that I love, 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 love your podcast. Um, I've been like telling myself I need to leave you guys' this voicemail, and I finally am. I want to leave a little note from the past and send it all the way to future Wendy, best and myself. Hello, my name is Ty, and I love you guys' podcast, like I said. I love the versatility that it has with it just being all around the world of cases. You guys are amazing, and your perspective is amazing. I hope to meet you in person and just give you, like, social distance air hugs. I... Definitely want you guys to keep doing what you're doing, and I really hope this makes a podcast because I've been telling myself I was going to do it, and I didn't want to get all the way to the current episode of, like, February Dagon 2022, and I didn't make the, I didn't make the, um, ghost now. Anyway, keep doing what you're doing. I am a young black woman, and my sister got me into a true crime podcast, and I'm grateful to be here, and I'm grateful that you ladies really are here. Please be safe be COVID safe. I'm hoping that, you know, you ladies still are COVID free. Um, But yeah, like I said, I am way back in like episode. I'm in September 2021. So I tried to do this before um, February came around, or at least before the next episode. And I hear myself in a future episode. But yeah, I have no complaints. I love, 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 love the podcast. And I hope you ladies are being blessed and the kids are blessed and healthy and y'all are doing amazing things and continue to do amazing things. Thank you guys. I hope you can hear me as well. Bye!
2: Oh, hip hop air horns to you, Ty. Yeah, thank you so um, much. We heard that voicemail and I immediately contacted Beth and I was like, did you hear this? This is so sweet. So sweet, sweet. Uh, yeah. It just warmed our hearts. It made our weeks and we are so happy that you found the pod. We're so grateful for you rocking with us and thank you for calling us and leaving a voicemail. Yeah, uh, thank you. I, you know, I think singing the, t- the voicemail number is really helping. It's helping, yeah. <laughs> 602 935 six, nine, nine four. Four. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that um we also got uh a new patron uh tara m or Pat- patreon excuse me patreon <laughs> patreon <Tara>, uh, <laughs> um and uh while i pull up on my tune just a reminder you get early ad free episodes on patreon and uh, bonus episodes, so yeah, check it out. Um, and so, Tara, and a special shout out um, for uh, for you. So this is for you, Tara M. Tara, Tara, the pod thanks you. Just an old indie pod keeps Tara on my mind. <laughs> I said a Tara. Tara, a song for you comes as sweet and clear as murder through the pines (laughs) and that's for you tara (laughs) um that was my um ray charles impression uh good one you know uh because i am moving to georgia yeah, and I just thought it sounded appropriate. It did. So we're going to take a little break and get to the story when we come back. in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal and get through it.
1: Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat
2: sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to.
1: It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This
2: podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop serial killers of color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com fruit. That's betterhel dot fruit.
1: And we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about the Waddell Buddhist Temple massacre, which occurred in August of 1991 in Waddell, Arizona, and is the largest mass murder in Arizona history. Whoa,
2: 1991,
1: yeah. huh? Yeah. Um, yep. I was looking
2: up uh what the top songs were in 1991. Uh huh. I wanna sex you up. Do you remember. <laughs> that one? <laughs> and no. That's
1: really the only one I recognize
2: from this list.
1: I do remember when this happened, though. The oh yeah, because you were here. I was here. Yeah, oh, I remember. Okay, then let's get it into was it. Let's first all
2: of, over the news. Yep, I'll bet. Um, so let's get into some stats because um, that is an important part of the story. Here we go. All right. So the victims were rest in power kings and queens Pyrok Gong Tong the temple's abbot Su Chi Anutaro. A monk bu Choi chi wrote A monk chalum chun tapim. A monk sang ging gao. A monk soam sak so pa. A monk si pran presert. A nun her grandson, Matthew Miller, a novice monk, and Jirasak Jirapong, a temple employee. So now we're going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth.
1: Well, the setting is Waddell, Arizona, an unincorporated community in Maricopa County, located northwest of the city of Phoenix at the foot of the White Tank Mountains. Prior to European invasion, the Native Americans who lived here were the Yavapai Apache, the A'adam peoples, and the Hohokam
2: So uh, today, Arizona is home to 22 Native American tribes that uh, represent more than 296,000 people. A total of 20 reservations cover more than 19 million acres, ranging in size from the very large Navajo Reservation, which is the size of West Virginia, to the small Tonto Apache Reservation that covers just 85 acres.
1: The intended Waddell town site was laid out by Donald W. Waddell in 1935 on property he owned in the northeast corner of Waddell Road and Cotton Lane in Maricopa County. Maricopa County, County is located in the south-central part of the state of Arizona and includes the city of Phoenix.
2: Maricopa County was established in 1871 and named after the Maricopa Tribe, although a total of five Native American reservations are currently located in the county. The Fort McDowell Yavapai Nation, the Gila River Indian Community, the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian Community, and the Tohono all Autumn Nation.
1: Phoenix, aka the Valley of the Sun, or as we Phoenicians say, just the Valley. <laughs> the valley. <laughs> yeah, it's at the center of an extensive and fertile valley of over 300,000 acres. It might surprise you to know that there are a lot of farms in the surrounding area of Phoenix. And in fact, in the early 20th century, the area was mostly farms, which were watered via irrigation from canals conveying water from the Salt River. Today, most of the farms have given way to housing tracts, but there are still some farms on the outskirts of the valley.
2: Outskirts? Uh, t- south side. Girl, Southside Phoenix, where I reside, there are cow cowboys, black and brown cowboys just going up and down the main the main drag with their horses. Yeah. We went it, it was really weird when we decided to move to Atlanta because we wanted to be around more black and brown people in a more diverse place. Um, that like same day we went hiking on South Mountain and we saw three black cowboys Wow, at three different times that they were not together. Like they were, wow. they didn't know each other. It was like, that's Whoa? wild. It, yeah. I know. So, uh, Where there are... were you before? <laughs> well, I know before <laughs> I made this decision, but there are a lot of farms. Um, my neighbor is a farmer. It has a farm. Oh, wow. So
1: anyway, yeah. Are, yeah. They've been pushed out mm-hmm. to the West, to the East, to mm-hmm. the South. Um, yeah. I know that there's so many to the North, but yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, but, uh, and also, I learned this in Zoom's third grade because of the pandemic, that the canals were constructed by the indigenous people who were here first.
1: Yeah. They yep. started the
2: canal system. Yep. Um, so in 1937, the Waddell Post Office was established inside of a store on the original town site. However, the town never really developed and instead just remained a post office and a place name for the area. Today, the expansion of the city of Surprise, uh, the use of the name Waddell to describe the location has fallen
1: into disuse. Luke Air Force Base is located just southeast of Waddell and about 15 miles west of Phoenix. It's named after 2nd Lieutenant Frank Luke Jr., who was born in Phoenix and was the number two U.S. ace to fly in World War I. The Arizona site was selected in 1940 after an offer from the city of Phoenix for a long-term lease on 1,440 acres of land for just $1 a year. That's a pretty good deal. That's a hell of a deal. Um,
2: How many people had to get this place to get that deal? Um, Anyway, the current base, which includes an Air Force range located on the Sonoran Desert between the Mexico-United States border and Interstate 8, covers about 1.9 million acres, roughly half the area of the state of Connecticut. Hey, Over...
1: Connecticut.
2: <laughs> Connecticut again! <laughs> Overhead are 57,000 cubic miles of airspace, where pilots practice air-to-air maneuvers and engage simulated battlefield targets on the ground.
1: The base population currently includes about 7,500 military members and 15,000 family members. In 1991, the area around Luke Air Force Base in Waddell was mostly farmland. The Valley has grown a lot since then. Between 1990 through 2000, the population of the Phoenix metropolitan area increased by 45 percent. Compare that to the average United States rate of 13.2 percent. And today it's one of the fastest growing metro areas in the county which i say boo whoa whoa whoa
2: Skrr, uh, why <laughs> pump the brakes <laughs> growth is good <laughs> no <laughs> too many people <laughs> oh yeah that is kind of a downside so But i
1: used i used to take my kids camping up by Sedona uh-huh. we would just go up on like a Friday just drive up there we'd get a camp spot and then we'd go hiking and mm-hmm, you know the mm-hmm. Slide Rock is up there we'd go to Slide Rock oh and, yeah
2: I love Slide yeah, Rock <laughs> uh,
1: you know drive up north you know do, do yeah. all those kinds of things and then come yeah. home on on Sunday um, mm-hmm. you can't do that anymore you can't you Wait can't just drive up there and camp there's just too many people Everybody's oh yeah, doing it is it, crowded. So. It is very yeah. You have to reserve a spot like yeah. Yes,
2: that's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. Um. But kind of exciting to be in a hot growing place, although. I'm leaving, so it's not my <laughs> yeah, problem anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah fuck you,
2: <laughs> my bad. <laughs>
1: I don't want you to leave. I want everybody else. I want all these newbies to go away. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what are we gonna do? Um, so, um, so there are gangs in um, all over the United States, and they've been um, documented in the Valley as far back as the 1930s. Um, But for decades, they've served more as uh, neighborhood protectors. According to Police Sergeant Paul Ferrero, quote, it wasn't like you were in a gang. You were from a neighborhood. Um, There were certain neighborhoods you knew if you had no business going there, you wouldn't go. And that's uh, that's true. There are some neighborhoods in in Phoenix that police won't won't go um, because, A, they're not welcome. And the neighborhood protectors, quote unquote, will resolve whatever issue there is on their own. Issues, yeah.
1: Those earlier gangs had a tight brotherhood in many of the neighborhoods, especially in those Latinx communities that were already bound together by family and culture. According to Helen Carter, who has a PhD in clinical psychology and worked in juvenile probation, quote, they existed to protect the neighborhood. Then they became kind of a cancer in the neighborhood, unquote.
2: Yeah, but Helen Carter what do you know? I mean, have you ever set foot in any of those neighborhoods? I appreciate the quote, but I just wonder how culturally competent this Dr. Carter is. Um, But anyway, according to Carter, street gangs flourish as old neighborhoods fall apart. longtime residents move out and the new arrivals have no real connection to the neighborhood. The West and South side of Phoenix, South side, uh, not coincidentally, the poorest and most overlooked areas of town have been um, predominant turf of Valley gangs and, and... I- I mean I guess that's true. Um but I've I've gang violence. I mean somebody was murdered down the street last week. I'm not going to lie. But it's not something I think
1: about on a daily daily basis. basis. Yeah. yeah. In 1981 police documented 150 street gangs in Phoenix. About 85% were Latinx, 10% black and 5% white. In 1999 there were more than 300 gangs on record in Phoenix, although only about 3 dozen posed any criminal threat.
2: And Arizona's Thai community is small and scattered. According to the 1990 census, there were only about 1,300 Thais in the entire state at that time. Wad Kamuran is a Thai Buddhist temple in Waddell. The members, the members are practitioners of Theravada Buddhism, the most commonly accepted name of Buddhism's oldest existing school. Wad Kumaran had about 400 members and was the third largest Buddhist Thai community in the United States at the time. That's pretty rad.
1: So I wanted to mention that um, the spelling of this temple, it's not what it sounds like. And I'm not really sure why. But Mm -hmm. uh, listening to a podcast uh, that did extensive research on this case. Oh, yeah. And the guy who did the research had somebody do the pronunciation for him, and they pronounced it Wad Kumaran. So that's how we're going to pronounce it too.
2: Thank you, babe. Um <laughs> <laughs> what would we do without her? Um, so now we're gonna get into the early life of the people involved in this case.
1: Well, Jonathan Andrew Duty was born in Nakhon, Nayak, Thailand, on May 9th, 1974, to Kamal and Liad Kanke. His birth name was Verpal Kanke, and his family nickname was Noi. Meaning junior or shorty.
2: Unfortunately, Jonathan's father Kamal died when Jonathan was only six years old. His mother Liad could not cope after the death of her husband and was sent to live with her sister in Germany. Jonathan and his brother David stayed in Thailand with relatives.
1: Liad's sister was married to a U.S. serviceman, and she was able to get Liad a job at the base in Germany. There, Liad met Brian Duty, a member of the U.S. Air Force. The two fell in love and married, and then Liad went back to Thailand to get at her sons. The boys then went to live with their mother and stepfather in Germany.
2: Brian Duty struggled with alcoholism and was verbally and physically abusive to Liad, which the boys witnessed. He also often punished Jonathan for his poor English. The family eventually moved to the United States, first to Georgia, and then finally to Luke Air Force Base in Arizona. Liad and Brian decided that the boys' Thai name should be changed to American
1: names, and they were allowed to choose their own names. As a child, Jonathan was quiet and with drawn and often got bullied and picked on by the other kids for his accent and inability to communicate well in English. He had a difficult childhood and got poor grades in school. But when the family moved to Arizona, he was able to take an English as a second language class and he began to excel. I feel bad when any kid is bullied. Just I, I know it's yeah. a small
2: part of the story, but oh, that breaks yeah. my heart. Um, by the time Jonathan was a teenager, Brian Duty had quit drinking and repaired his relationship with his stepsons and his wife. Jonathan was doing well in school and became enamored with the military. He joined the ROTC and was commander of the ROTC Honor Guard and Color Guard. Uh, he was also active in the Civil Air patrol. And uh, he liked orderliness and the predictability of the military.
1: Jonathan went to Agua Fria High School, where he finally made a friend, Alessandro or Alex Garcia. Alex's father was a career army sergeant who Alex believed favored his brother. Alex also gravitated towards the military and was also in the ROTC but he was also the member of a gang. In
2: 1991, Jonathan was 17 and living at Luke Air Force Base with his mom and stepfather. His friends called him JD. His family were members of the Wad Kumaran, a nearby Buddhist temple, and his mother often cooked meals for the monks there. Jonathan went to the temple only sporadically.
1: His brother David, on the other hand, was very active in the temple. In Theravada Buddhism, most men spend some time living as a monk. A young man is initiated as a novice monk and then remains temporarily For several days to several months. As a novice monk, David spent three weeks studying at the temple in the summer of 1991. During that time, Jonathan occasionally visited the temple, usually to pick up or drop off his brother.
2: Matthew Miller, the grandson of Foy Pran Pressert, one of the temple nuns, was also a novice monk, spending part of his summer at the temple before
1: entering 10th grade at Agua Fria High School. Uh, so now it's timeline time. What do you got, Beth? In March of 1991, two men named Kwaki and Kat and David Sun were arrested in Hong Kong for attempting to smuggle heroin into the United States. By hiding it inside statues of the Buddha. According to the DEA, the smugglers' plans were to have Buddhist monks carry the icons through customs, apparently assuming that the U.S. customs would not question monks. In April,
2: Pai Ruk Gong Tong, Wat Kumaran's abbot, journeyed to Thailand to visit his family. When he returned to Phoenix, he brought with him several cases of Buddha statues to be handed out to temple members during the observation of Vasa, also known as Buddhist Lent.
1: He also brought with him a 21-year-old Thai man named Jirasok Jirapong. Temple members and neighbors called him Boy. The abbot brought Jirapong to Arizona as a favor to the young man's aunt. She apparently wanted the monks to straighten him out.
2: <laughs> Ooh, all these young men needing to be straightened straighten out. out. Yeah. Um, but, and if you know any teenage boys... It makes a lot of sense.
1: You know why. Uh,
2: (laughs) So um, temple members said that in Thailand, Jirapong had grown wild and lazy. Uh, He had a taste for Western culture, flashy clothes, and possibly doing drugs. (laughs) Now, his aunt believed a summer under the tutelage of the monks at Wat Kumaran would
1: help him. He is remembered by temple members as polite and easygoing. But some said he was bored with the routine of the temple and not particularly particularly interested in holy work. It's okay, neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> Who would be? Would you blame him? He often carried large amounts of cash and he liked American movies and music. He was the only resident of the temple without religious duties and the one with the most contact with people from the outside. Joseph Berner, a friend of Jonathan Duty's, says he accompanied Duty to the
2: temple two or three times. In early August of nineteen ninety one, Joseph Berner, Jonathan Duty, David Duty, and Alex Garcia went to the temple to give Jirapong a Terminator two souvenir cup. All right. A promotional item they bought at a Subway sandwich shop. Now, according to Burner, during this visit, Jonathan Duty commented to him that there was a chest full of money in the temple.
1: On Saturday, August 10th, 1991, two Thai women named Chali Borders and Primchat Hash prepared to go to the temple. Female members of the temple took turns cleaning and cooking meals for the monks, and it was their turn to cook lunch. This was an honor for them, a small service that they could perform as part of their faith.
2: The two women arrived at Wa Kumaran at uh, about 10.40 a.m. Premchit entered the temple, and as she passed the common living room, she saw the monks lying on the floor, but assumed they were sleeping or praying. However, when the women found that the line to
1: the telephone had been cut, they'd
2: become concerned. Chayi, went to talk to the monks
1: about it. To her horror, Chowee realized that the monks lying on the floor were not sleeping. They were dead. In total, nine bodies lay face down on the floor in the common living room. The bodies were arranged in a loose circle with their heads facing the center of the circle and their legs outwards. The room's carpet was soaked in blood. Chowie and Premchit ran from the scene and drove to a neighboring house to call 911.
2: I was also going to say they thought that um, they were sleeping and the line was cut, but it was also odd that there were there were nuns present with the monks yeah, on the ground. And that you, that would never happen, I guess. Right.
1: Yeah. A nun would never have laid down on the floor with the monks. That would mm-hmm. have. Yeah. Never yes. happened. So that was also another alert weird um, thing, that yeah. I wanted
2: to mention. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your
0: podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com.
2: By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance.
1: That's right, it's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test. Sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. (laughs) As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force.
2: Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while,
1: June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your
2: inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Um, So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. So once police arrived to investigate, they discovered that all of the victims had been shot in the back of the head execution style. Some of the victims had their hands clasped in prayer above their heads. There were also shotgun blasts to torsos, arms, and legs of some of the victims.
1: Investigators found 17 .22 caliber shell casings and four shotgun shells. Later, based on ballistics, the FBI was able to identify the twenty-two used as a Marlin rifle. It's not a powerful rifle, and it's often used for target practice or hunting game. Mm-hmm. One of the investigators commented that the suspects might be farm kids who borrowed their father's weapons. Uh,
2: I also heard that the uh, people thought it might be like some racists. Uh, yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you get to, <laughs> it? must be that some racists who went in there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> another uh, theory. Yeah. Um,
2: so numerous items were missing, including cameras, stereo equipment, jewelry, and about $2,600 in cash. However, some cash had been left behind, including money in envelopes in a donations box and taped to a money tree. There was also a safe in clear view, but it had not been opened and the monks did not know the combination.
1: The word bloods was carved into one of the walls and investigators came to believe that the word was intended to throw the investigators off to make them think that this was a crime committed by the Bloods Gang. But this crime did not match their M.O., so they didn't buy it.
2: Nice try! Uh, So a, a fire extinguisher had been set off in the temple and the perpetrators had walked through the residue, leaving boot prints behind. Temple members would not have worn shoes inside as it is forbidden. The prints were later d- determined to be from cold weather combat boots, and there had been at least two
1: perpetrators. The victims were identified as the temple's abbot, Pira Gongtong, five monks named Suchi Anudara, Buchoi Chairot, Chalum Chuntapim, Sang Gingao, and Somsak Sopa, and then there was a nun named Foy Simpran Presert. Her grandson Matthew Miller, who is a novice monk, and Jirasak Jirapong, aka Boy. A temple helper.
2: And again, rest rest in power, y'all. So seventy-five yeah. year old Foy C. Pran Pressert had spent most of her life in Thailand working a family rice paddy and raising four children. She had come to Arizona four years prior to be near her daughter Fong, who was married to a US serviceman.
1: Matthew Miller was the only American citizen living at the temple. He was spending the summer as an acolyte. His half-brother, 20-year-old Jerry Hastings, said Miller wanted to learn to speak Thai and educate himself about the culture.
2: Jira Pung, aka Boy, was the only resident of the temple without religious duties, and the one with the most contact with people from the outside. He was the only victim not wearing the traditional saffron and orange robes of the clergy when he was killed. And when you, I don't know if we're going to have crime scene photos or not online, but um, boy, are they disturbing.
1: yeah. Yeah, they are. Four of the murdered Buddhists arrived at Wad Kumaran in July of 1991. Turnover among Thai Buddhist monks is fairly high because the Theravada tradition requires all males to spend a portion of their lives as a monk. But the fact that six of the nine victims had been in Thailand less than a month before the murders intrigued investigators.
2: Investigators also noted that at least three other Buddhists were from Chiang Mai, a city in the heart of the Golden Triangle near the border of Thailand and Myanmar. Myanmar formerly burma the golden triangle is a term coined by the cia for a 367000 square mile area where the borders of thailand laos and myanmar meet It has been one of the largest opium-producing areas of the world since the 1950s. Most of the world's heroin came from the Golden Triangle until the early 21st century when Afghanistan became the world's largest producer.
1: Many of the region's people are raised in the drug culture, with children working alongside their parents in the poppy fields, which, of course, they would do because, you know, you got to make money. (laughs) Got to eat. Yeah. In the early 1980s, the father of one of the murdered monks was arrested in Thailand, for smuggling heroin. So investigators began to believe that there was a drug angle to these murders. Supporting this theory was a note
2: written in Thai on a notepad found on a dining table in the room where the bodies were found. It was directions from Phoenix to a public telephone in the parking lot of a high school in Placencia, California. According to the note, the note's bearer was to dial a local telephone number and ask
1: for pet. A final sentence written in English indicated that, quote, it now weighs 1,083 pounds, unquote. Investigators believe this sentence was a reference to what the U.S. Customs officials described as the, quote, largest heroin seizure in the history of the United States, unquote.
2: I thought this was a, a stretch of a clue. But anyway, so in that raid, which took place in June of 1991 at the Joint Sun Corporation warehouse in Hayward near Oakland, California, agents arrested 5 people and confiscated 1,080 pounds of China white heroin with an estimated street value of 2.5 to 3 billion dollars. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot.
1: All 5 suspected drug smugglers were from Taiwan. Task force investigators contacted Bay Area authorities but were unable to establish any solid links between the joint sun heroin seizure and the temple murders. Still, the heroin seized in Hayward originated in Thailand, and some investigators were convinced that there was a connection to the murders.
2: I think this this uh, cannot be understated. Investigators and their convictions really fucks up this yeah. whole. Case. Uh, So task force investigators suspected Matthew Miller and Boy might have bought and sold small amounts of marijuana while they were at the temple. The telephone number of Jerry Hastings, Matthew's brother, was also scribbled on the sheet of paper with the placencia number. So investigators believe that the notes in English that were written on the pad
1: were made by Matthew. Seven days after the murders, the victims' bodies were released to the Thai community. On August 17th, the Saturday following the discovery of the bodies, a week-long wait commenced with the victims lying in state at the temple. Then all the bodies, with the exception of Matthew Miller and Foy, Cipran, Pressert were flown to Thailand. Stories began to circulate that the
2: Buddhists had been murdered by Asian gangsters, and their murders were somehow connected to drug trafficking, and investigators searched for evidence of drug dealing at the temple. And late on the evening of August 14th, 1991, two police dogs trained to detect heroin, cocaine, and marijuana were sent to the temple. Investigators waited until after dark to employ the dogs to avoid tipping off the press.
1: The first dog was sent in and reacted to two areas inside of the temple. Then the second dog was sent in and hit on the same two places, a long low platform covered with blue cloth that ran along the north end of the sanctuary and a filing cabinet in the abbot's room. Some of the Buddha statues that Abbot Pairuk Gongtong had brought back from Thailand were still in the temple the morning the bodies were found but none bore any trace of illegal narcotics.
2: Yeah, I think um, do- the dog sniffing, d- dogs are great. We don't deserve them. But sometimes the, the searches that they do where they react to something, I think are something, completely yeah. subjective. Yeah. Um, so although the search turned up no drugs, a task force member said the dogs probably reacted to the sense of residual traces. He also said that while police consider drug sniffing dogs fairly reliable, okay guys, their reactions are not conclusive. Thank you. They are, however, sensitive enough to react to microscopic residue. And the fact that two dogs independently hit on the same areas convinced detectives that something unusual had been there. You know what else I think is unusual? Maybe it was sausages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was
1: Messages,
2: gonna yeah, maybe the <laughs> right from the drone, or maybe I mean, maybe the dogs were racist. You ever heard that one?
1: <laughs> Investigators also found a trapdoor that concealed a plywood-lined space near the recessed altar to the west wall of the sanctuary. The dogs did not react to the empty secret compartment, but it looked newly built, so may never have been used, or you know, it could have been a place to put valuables.
2: Maybe. I mean, but these, uh, man, these theories they come up with. Yeah. Uh, They got a lot. Come on, guys. Maybe it's more suitable for an imaginarium and less suitable for police work. Uh, Hey, Mr. Rogers is calling. He's interested in uh, using, (laughs) using your imaginations uh, for, for a new show he's got. Uh, So language was an obstacle in the murder investigation. Um, Many temple members did not speak English. English. The investigators had to be schooled on social aspects of Thai culture, such as the fact that Thai people will smile even when investigators thought that they should be upset. That's a very Western, white, American way of thinking. Um, And investigators had to bring in people to interpret for them, and even a Thai ambassador was involved. Uh, The case garnered national and even international attention.
1: In the meantime, two young men were stopped by security officers at Luke Air Force Base twice. They were Rolando Raleigh Caradachia sixteen and Jonathan Duty seventeen. They had been stopped on August twentieth and then again on the twenty first. The officers were having some issues with teenagers on the base, and the two were stopped as part of an investigation into a reported shooting, although nobody had been injured.
2: Uh, inside Caradachia's car, officers found a Marlin twenty two caliber rifle, and the boys were told to leave the base and sent on their way. The officers had not yet gotten word from the sheriff's office, sheriff's department, that they were looking for the Marlin 22 rifle. But this information was put into a report that later made its way to the task force.
1: And on September 10th, Chia was interviewed at the restaurant where he worked about his Marlin 22 caliber rifle. The detective told Chia that his rifle might be involved in a case that he was investigating. Chia apparently thought that the officers were looking for stolen weapons, and he agreed to turn over the rifle.
2: When the detective retrieved the rifle at his apartment, Jonathan Duty was there and was also questioned. He told the detective that he and his friend Alex Garcia had fired it several times together, but that line of investigation ended because the detectives got a new lead. The rifle sat in a detective's office for weeks and was not even submitted for testing until October 21st, a month later.
1: Wow. On September 10th, the same day that Chia was questioned about his rifle, the Tucson Police Department received a call from a man named Mike McGraw, known in his South Tucson neighborhood as Crazy Mike.
2: <laughs> oh, uh-oh.
1: <laughs> McGraw claimed to have information about the Temple murders, so investigators picked him up from a Tucson psychiatric hospital and interviewed him.
2: This another wild clue in this investigation y'all so McGraw he was 24 at the time and a mental patient was questioned by quote-unquote tag teams of investigators who questioned him relentlessly. Um, And finally, he cracked and implicated himself and several others in the killings at Wad Kumaran Temple.
1: McGraw said that he and four other men, Leo Bruce, 28, Mark Nunez, 19, Dante Parker, 20, and Victor Zarate, 28, drove to Phoenix and robbed a church. He said that he waited outside as the four other men went into the church for about an hour. When the men came back out, they all left.
2: Um, I was gonna say, there is a book Called "Innocent Until Interrogated" about this yep. case. Did you read it? Yep. I, I, I just saw interviews with the author.
1: I didn't read the whole thing. I read some of it, and that uh, podcast framed used that book brought a it lot. up a, a lot. Yeah, yeah. but it, just
2: the um, the interrogation is also a huge failure in the in investigation this of yeah. this case. Um, but anyway, McGraw, Bruce, Nunez, Parker, and Zarate uh, were taken to phoenix and grilled from 9 p.m until dawn every day from september 11th to 7th september 13th and i believe they were all young men right all yeah. under the yeah. age of 24
1: two of them were 28 oh okay. but um oh, yeah. but the there other ones were, but they were like, young yeah. yeah yeah
2: um and uh they were also i don't think um any of them were white except
1: for McGraw. Maybe Mike McGraw. Yeah. And he he is a mental patient. You exactly. Know? Yeah. He's um, vulnerable.
2: Right. Right. Um, and it just makes it even more troubling. Um, yeah. Russell Kimball, the homicide chief for the uh, sheriff's office at the time, later admitted to the mistakes made by investigators and he
1: spilled all the tea. Go on, girl. He said the investigators pleaded, cajoled, threatened, lied and fed information about the case to them. He said, quote, we hammered on those guys until we broke their will. It was as simple and as bad as that. After a while, they were willing to say anything, unquote.
2: That's what happens in poorly run interrogations. Uh, and it's just cruel. And uh, of course, anybody's going to say whatever they can to make it stop. Right.
1: Yeah. And and they don't get anything out of it because people will give them false confessions and the real perpetrators go free.
2: It's still out there. Yeah. Yeah. So four of the men eventually told the detectives what they wanted to hear just to make it stop. And because they'd been fed information about the murders, they gave believable details.
1: Bruce told investigators he had shot all the victims
2: with his brother's twenty-two caliber rifle,
1: which wasn't true. Right. And uh, Victor Zarate, the one holdout who did not break, maintained his innocence and was released. The other four men, McGraw, Bruce, Nunez, and Parker, who became known as the Tucson Four, remained in jail after signing confessions. But soon afterwards, they recanted the confession, saying that they were coerced, which they were.
2: (laughs) They, yeah, they were, and I, I, I'm always baffled by people who are like, "Well, they confessed. Why? Why would you yeah. confess to something that you didn't do?" But people don't understand. They were tortured. <laughs> yeah, that this this kind of interrogation is is torture. Um, Awful, and that yeah. is why they do it. And if yep. it happened to you, what would you do? Um, yep. But investigators were certain that the crime had been solved. That is until ballistics came back on the 22 rifle that Leo Bruce had claimed he'd used to shoot the Buddhists. To the supreme disappointment of investigators, <laughs> I like that. Who wrote that? Hey, nice, nice job, Beth. It was ruled out as the homicide weapon. Investigators also could not find any boots that matched the boot prints at the crime scene or any other physical evidence. So let the Tucson 4 go. Did they do that? No, <laughs> no. not right
1: away anyway. The investigators on the ground also found alibi witnesses for the suspects and they were starting to believe that the four men were actually innocent, but the higher ups would not hear of it. They oh, were boy. sure that the Tucson Four were guilty. Lack of evidence, be damned.
2: How does that work? In I don't <laughs> know. I, don't I just. Know. It's uh, like that. He's
1: good for it. I, I
2: just know it. I, I feel just, it in my heart, <laughs> in my heart, and in my gut. Yeah. And um, that's a Jason Flom who uh, we've talked, we've shouted out his podcast, "Righteous Convictions," um, and "Wrongful Convictions" on this show before. And he calls our justice system, um, really the injustice system because yeah. this happens really frequently, a lot more a than lot than, than we would like to believe. Know about.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: On October 19, 1991, two months after the Temple Massacre, the body of 50-year-old Alice Cameron, a legal secretary, was found in the bed of her pickup truck at Mesquite Campground located northeast of Phoenix. She had been shot twice in the back. Alice was from Cave Creek, which is uh, north of Phoenix, but she often went to this campground to relax.
1: Police picked up a man named George Peterson who was camping nearby. Using similar interrogation techniques that they used on the Tucson 4, deputies obtained a confession to her murder. George Peterson, 45, a mentally fragile Vietnam War veteran, said he killed Alice Cameron. This was not true. Jesus. Again. Again. So the
2: Maricopa County Sheriff's Department had extracted a total of five false confessions to murder in both cases. Sir fricking prize. The public <laughs> was later outraged over the botched investigations and false arrests. And in particular, with the Sheriff Tom Agnos. Um, and he was likely one of those higher ups who was like, no, nope, yep. Nope, it's it's got to be this it. way. They yep. did it. I feel it. Um, I feel it. <laughs> I feel it in my bones, and this is unfortunate, which led to the election of joe arpaio everyone remember his greatest hits the bologna sandwiches the tent city uh he anyway was a terrible human being who was our sheriff for too long he stayed uh for six terms from 1993 to 2017 uh and he was the worst uh and talk about going out of the frying pan and into the fire (laughs) oh
1: boy yeah no shit wow revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and
0: numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. 3 a.m. the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends, trying to bust each other's balls Find the best stories and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.
1: On October 23rd, the Arizona Department of Public Safety Crime Lab identified the murder weapon. Wow. And it was Raleigh Karatechia's rifle. Karatechia was picked up for questioning. He and a friend had formed a gang called the AM Posse, or After Midnight Posse, so named because they would frequently rob storage facilities, buildings, cars, and occasionally homes after midnight for easy to pawn items.
2: So that rifle that was just sitting in somebody's office, they were like, wait a minute. Yep.
1: They <laughs> wait finally a minute, let me it. check. The- what? what's this here? Yeah, they fu- it took them like six weeks to test it. Unbelievable. So um, yeah. he also had, he had a record. So
2: investigators were sure, now we know, it would definitely know that he was involved with the Tucson Four. We've got it now. <laughs> Kawarada claimed no knowledge of anything and said he loaned the rifle to his friends and classmates, Duty and Garcia. Duty and Garcia were then picked up for questioning.
1: Over the summer, Duty's stepfather had been transferred to an Air Force base in Colorado, and Duty had been allowed to stay in Arizona to finish out the school year. At first, he was living in an apartment with a friend named Mike and Raleigh Karadachia. But Duty and Karadachia had a falling out, so Duty moved in with Alex Garcia, who lived with his parents.
2: Police searched Garcia's house and found items that had been stolen from the temple, plus a 20-gauge shotgun and a boot that belonged to Garcia and that matched the boot price found at the temple. Of note, no boot was found that matched the second set of boot prints found at the temple.
1: Garcia was interrogated and eventually admitted to being at the temple the night of the murders. According to investigators, Garcia was unemotional as he told the story and was basically just stating facts. He claimed that he and Duty robbed the temple, but said it was Duty who shot the monks with the 22.
2: According to Garcia, the crime was Duty's idea, and the Tucson Four had nothing to do with it. He said that Duty wanted to rob the temple, that they went to the temple that night to commit their first burglary, and they decided to do the robbery as sort of a military exercise because remember they were weren't they both in rotc yeah yeah. So they dressed up in military clothing and snuck into the temple.
1: Then they burst into where the monks were and yelled, "Police!" They told the monks that there were escaped convicts and that they were searching for them. And they made the victims lie face down on their stomachs.
2: After ransacking the place for money and valuables, Garcia claimed that Jonathan told him, "quote No witnesses." Unquote, and started shooting the victims. Garcia said he tried to persuade Duty not to kill the victims after the robbery, but after they were recognized by Miller, Duty decided that all of the temple residents had to die.
1: According to Garcia, Duty walked in a circle around the nine victims, pressing the muzzle of the .22 rifle against each head and pulling the trigger. Garcia claimed that he just panicked and fired his shotgun in the direction of the victims.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Garcia carved bloods on the wall to confuse police, and he set off a fire extinguisher for fun. The two then drove down to a dry wash and split up the valuables and the cash, which was $2,600 that was stolen from the temple, and they went on with their lives.
1: Because all of the physical evidence led to Garcia, the case against duty was weaker. So they offered Garcia a deal in exchange for his testimony against duty. But they also told him that in order to get the deal, he needed to be totally truthful. After conferring with his attorney... Garcia also admitted to being involved in the murder of Alice Cameron. Part of me thinks
2: that this is completely unnecessary because there was so much physical evidence against Garcia. Yeah, and yeah. it wasn't. I know they wanted to get the, this two footprint thing; they wouldn't let it go, and they got one guy, but we we got we can't go on without getting the other one. It was it just um another failure <laughs> yeah uh in my opinion but right. the month the month after the murders Garcia started dating a 14 year old girl named Michelle Hoover Garcia was her first boyfriend and she became infatuated with him her family did
1: not approve of him but she was allowed to see him under supervised conditions on October 17th Hoover stole her father's gun and her mother's truck and she and Garcia snuck out to the desert to do some target practice but the truck got stuck in some sand and they couldn't get it out until the morning. And rather than go home to face the wrath of her parents, Hoover decided to run away with Garcia. Never a good idea. Um, no.
2: Yeah. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. I, I I mean, I totally get it. You don't want to get in trouble. So you air, run away or you, you, you lie, go, you and especially when you're young. It but seems like, the, yeah, <laughs> just but go home. You, you live and you just learn. And just it. it's, it's so much better <laughs> if you just if you just tell your parents, if you just go home, your yeah, just just go your home and do the happened. right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the pair ended up at the Mesquite campground, but they were out of money. So they decided to find someone to rob. They met Alice Cameron at the campground and engaged in conversation. When they found out she was camping alone, they decided she was a good mark.
1: Hoover had refused to have sex with Garcia, but he found another way for her to show him that she loved him. He told her that she had to kill Alice in order to prove her love for him. They waited until dark and then crept up on Alice, who was sleeping in the bed of her pickup truck. According to Garcia, Michelle shot Alice twice in the back, but Alice did not die right away.
2: Garcia and Hoover waited for over one hour for Alice to die. God, then they stole Alice's wallet, which contained a dollar and some change. An attempt was made to use her bank card at an ATM, but they were unable to extract any money. Had police bothered to look, they would have seen photos of Garcia and Hoover taken at the motherfucking ATM from this attempt.
1: Yeah, it's just, why would you not look at the, why would you not look at those? What the
2: I, fuck? I, in, ni- in 1991, I, there's no excuse. If this yeah. was, you know, any other decade where, you know, CCTV <laughs> or cameras wasn't like, wasn't a thing, I right. would say, okay, I, I think I get it. I get uh, that, yeah, but
1: yeah. Mm, not today. They, not, yeah, they could have, they could have solved it so much sooner. Anyway, they sure could have Garcia and Hoover were gone for five days when they were found in Payson. Since they were considered just runaway juveniles, they were only questioned minimally and their parents were called to pick them up. When Michelle's parents came to get her, she cried and told them she was real happy they'd found her. Alice Cameron's body had been discovered in the bed of her truck on October 19th, but nobody connected the runaways to her murder until Garcia told the police about it. So back in to the Temple Murders. Jonathan Duty and Alex Garcia were arrested for the murders on
2: October twenty sixth, nineteen ninety one. The heat was then turned up on Duty. Good Arizona reference. <laughs> the heat was then turned. Ter- <laughs> the heat was then turned up on Duty. Duty was subjected to intense interrogation by the same group of officers using the same bucked up techniques that they had earlier successfully used to quote unquote break down the Tucson Four,
1: according to Valley lawyer and author Gary El. Stewart, author of the 2010 book, Innocent Until Interrogated, quote, duty was arrested at 9.30 p.m. on a Friday night, put in a holding cell until midnight, and then they started the interrogation. It went all night, and by 6 a.m. the next morning, he is starting to be incoherent. You can hear it on the tape. He is crying and petrified. He has two adults playing the good cop, bad cop routine. He was in there almost 13 hours, unquote.
2: And he was 17. And so yeah. like, a kid. did anybody call his parents? No. Um, so Judy finally told police what they wanted to hear. He agreed that he'd gone to the temple that night with Garcia, but he didn't admit to shooting anyone. He claimed
1: Caratachia and two other boys were also there. The Tucson Four were released uh, finally on November 22nd, 1991. All but McGraw sued the county. In 1994, Leo Bruce and Mark Nunez each got $1.1 million. Dante Parker got $240,000. And George Peterson was released on January 6, 1993, after spending 14 months in jail for the murder of Alice Cameron. Wow. This is such a fucked up story. It is. It just keeps going on and on. (laughs)
2: Um, So now we're going to talk about the trial. So in exchange for his testimony and a promise that uh, prosecutors wouldn't seek the death penalty, Garcia pled guilty and was sentenced to 271 years in prison.
1: Maintaining his innocence, Duty was tried three times. In his first trial, defense attorneys argued Garcia was lying and only implicated Duty to avoid a death sentence. Prosecutors said both men were equally culpable and that Garcia had no reason to fabricate his story.
2: Wait a minute! Did you guys see what Garcia had done? <laughs> what he did? Okay. Uh, so on February eleventh, nineteen ninety-four, Duty was convicted of murder and sentenced to two hundred eighty-one years in prison. Now remember, Garcia. Gar- CIA got 271 right. and Duty got 281. The case drew national attention. Duty's treatment at the hands of interrogators brought in Alan Dershowitz. Ooh.
1: In 1995, Dershowitz, working with lawyer Peter Balkin in Phoenix, argued to the Arizona Court of Appeals that Duty was wrongfully deprived of his parents' presence during the interrogation. He also argued that the Miranda warning against self-incrimination was improperly administered and that Duty's confession was not voluntary. Duty's conviction was overturned in 2008 and again in 2011 by the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals.
2: Prosecutors could not seek the death penalty in his retrials because of a 2005 U.S. Supreme Court decision that prohibits authorities from pursuing that punishment against defendants who were younger than 18 years old when the crime occurred. Duty went back on trial in August 2013, which resulted in a mistrial.
1: In January of 2014, at the end of his third trial, Doody was found guilty of nine counts of first-degree murder, nine counts of armed robbery, and one count each of burglary and conspiracy to commit armed robbery.
2: Defense attorney Maria Schaefer told the judge that Duty had expressed remorse for what happened to the victims, but, quote, he wants everybody to know that he did not do these crimes, unquote.
1: The judge imposed nine life sentences with a chance of parole after 25 years and ruled that they be served back to back, though... So he gave Judy credit for the 22 years he'd already served in custody.
2: The judge also sentenced Judy to 12 years in prison for each of the nine counts of armed robbery, 12 years for burglary, and nine years for conspiracy. All of those sentences run concurrently, but after the life sentences are completed. So, yeah, what's the okay.
1: point? <laughs> yeah. Class one felonies like first degree murder are no longer eligible for parole due to the truth in sentencing bill, a state law that was passed by the Arizona legislature in 1993 that dissolved the parole board in the state of Arizona.
2: Well, wait a minute. Hang on.
1: We don't have a parole board. Uh, Not for the not for these types of crimes. No. (gasps) Oh, my God, girl you need to get out of here
2: too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the only reason I say that is Beth and I are very unlikely to commit any uh, crimes murders, <laughs> or be involved in any crimes, but how easily and swiftly what somebody else says can have you f- finding yourself in an interrogation room. But, but after listening to this story, it it's seems terrifying. Way too yeah. easy. Yeah, and if if things Don't go your way. You don't have the money to get out of it. You don't know your rights. You're fucked. Um, So, oh boy, that was a, I just hurt my neck (laughs) snapping it so fast. Uh, So in 1993, the sentence of, life with the chance of parole after 25 years was eliminated by the Arizona legislature and replaced with life with the chance of release after 25 years. If not sentenced to death or to natural life in prison, these inmates are given a life sentence with the possibility of quote-unquote release, which requires the Arizona governor to either pardon them for their offenses or issue a commutation for their sentence.
1: Unlikely. Very unlikely. Yeah. Let's see Doocy do (laughs) that. no. There's no fucking way. (laughs) Under the old law, prisoners were guaranteed a hearing before the parole board after serving 25 years. Under the new law, there is no guaranteed hearing prisoners must instead file a petition with the Board of Executive Clemency, which can then recommend a pardon or sentence commutation, but only the governor can grant them.
2: Oh boy, this is depressing. So between 1993 and 2016, in at least 248 cases, judges imposed life sentences that included the chance of parole after 25 years. 90% of those sentences were the result of a plea deal, and many of the prisoners were unaware that parole did not exist for them. That's fucked up. That is so fucked up.
1: So, although Arizona no longer has any mechanism to grant parole, technically, the earliest duty would be eligible for it would be in 175 years. From
2: now. 101, 175 years from, from now. From when he
1: was sentenced. God damn.
2: Yeah. So... Let's get into where are they now? Uh, normally I have more big bigger <laughs> yeah, when I say that. That's it, kind of a bummer. This story really brought yeah. me down. Uh, so I'll tell you, Rolando Roli Caratachia died on April seventh, two 2007 at approximately 2 a.m. in a single car accident on a secluded country road in the West Valley when the car he was riding in struck a power pole. When officers arrived, they found his body approximately 150 feet from the car. It looked like it, it had been dragged there. And his flip-flops were found on the passenger side of the vehicle.
1: An autopsy wow. showed that Karatechia had twice the legal limit of alcohol in his system, plus amphetamines. He died of blunt force injuries to his chest. The driver was determined to be a 12-year-old boy who survived what? the crash. Investigators still don't know who dragged Karatachia's body from the car. Wow. So that's a crazy um, story. Is,
2: too. That is, I didn't. I really didn't see that one coming. I. This story is. I nuts. feel like I. Yeah, I feel like I need to process all like, of
1: this. Yeah,
2: I, I'm, I might just sit here in front of my microphone after we <laughs> stop this recording and just stare at the screen, <laughs> thinking about. What 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 is this? So Garcia is currently currently housed at the central office, which may be in Florence or Phoenix. Uh, we couldn't tell. But the good news is that he will never be released. Jonathan Duty is currently housed in Florence prison in the central unit. He still maintains his innocence and says he did not commit the temple murders.
1: Michelle Hoover pled guilty to the murder of Alice Cameron. She was transferred to adult court and was the youngest woman ever sentenced to Arizona prison. She got 15 years and was released in 2008 at the age of 31.
2: By the way, these records are not things the, the, the state
1: of Arizona should be proud right, of. Right, right. Um, the youngest woman ever yeah. in our state. Yes, transferred yeah. to adult court when she was, she wow. committed a crime when she was 14. Yeah, awesome.
2: Yeah, when uplauso, Arizona. Not. The temple the temple is still there, and in a garden at the temple is a memorial to those who were slain. Now we're going to get into our takeaways. Um, So what do you got, Beth?
1: Well, this story was really complex. I'll say. So we did our best to cover it, but there's a ton more to the story that we didn't, Mm -hmm. we weren't able to get into because of time constraints. And I mentioned it uh, while we were telling the story, uh, but there's a podcast called Framed. And the Mm -hmm. second season is totally devoted to this case. They did a in-depth investigation and it's really well done yes agreed and after listening to that podcast i am completely convinced that jonathan duty is innocent and 100 there's a lot of evidence presented in the podcast to support this conclusion i have no doubt mm-hmm. really yeah i think the real perpetrators were raleigh karatachia and alex garcia same. Alex was afraid of Chia, who, by all accounts, was a really bad dude. Yep. Uh, framed podcast plays a lot of the interrogation tapes.
2: So I thought I wasn't sure if it was the real kids or it's the actors because the quality was so good.
1: And, some, and, of I, them, I, and I, some of them it was bad. Yeah. 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 It was the real the real tapes. Yeah.
2: I didn't know that.
1: Thank yes. You. And uh, Raleigh Karatechia is one cold, manipulative motherfucker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> His voice yeah. and the way that he talked reminded me of Israel Keys. I don't know if you listen to any of Ooh, his cats. he's a serial killer from Alaska. He is okay, yeah well he's de- he's dead now, but oh. there's a podcast called True Crime Bullshit and uh uh-huh. uh uh-huh, they have so many episodes about Israel Keys, and they played a lot of his uh interview tapes and and just the oh. way that he talked and his uh-huh. the, even the timbre of his voice was the same. Whoa, yeah, whoa it, it was kind of weird. Yeah. Whoa. Wild. Okay, OG, true crime. <laughs> Flex.
2: <laughs> okay. So anyway, back to
1: Alex Garcia. Um, I think he yeah. was afraid of uh, Chia. And so instead uh-huh. of snitching on Chia, which uh, could get him killed, mm-hmm. Garcia who all of the evidence pointed to as obviously one of the perpetrators, yeah. told investigators that he did the crime with Jonathan Duty. Yeah. And it was probably easy enough to recount the crime and then sub in Jonathan for Raleigh. Yeah. It seems to me like Alex is actually a budding serial killer.
2: Yeah. I got that impression. Yeah.
1: He mm-hmm. participated in the, in the temple murders, but also either killed Alice Cameron himself or pinned Michelle for it. Uh, Michelle confessed to the crime, but who knows? I'm, I wasn't one hundred percent convinced yeah. she did it. She was. Yeah. 14 or 15 years old at the time of the crime and easily yeah. manipulated and she was infatuated yeah. with him so who knows mm-hmm. um, and yeah. people at the time were really upset that she only got 15 years I yeah. read like letters to the editor and stuff like that um, oh yeah. dang
2: deep dive alert
1: <laughs> and they were pissed <laughs> um, but no. she was a juvenile yeah I, I. but I have to think of the time too 1993 that was when they were talking about super predators and shit so
2: oh Oh my God! I didn't even think yeah. about that.
1: Super predators, war on drugs, yeah. war on gangs. And so they were kids are listening to violent crime, rap music. Yeah, these kids yeah. are all going bad. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I think that's why that happened. Although I couldn't say it wouldn't happen again today. <laughs> You know,
2: uh, well, <laughs> down is up, yep. up is down, everything's, everything's fucked,
1: fucked up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what's really infuriating <laughs> to me, and I think to you too, is how the sheriff's office interrogated all of the suspects in this case the Tucson mm-hmm. Four, Duty, everyone. It was uh, pretty yeah. fucked up. Yeah. They really should be ashamed of themselves. <laughs> for sure. And uh, why the crime was committed, I, I don't really know for sure. I think it started out as a robbery and then became a murder mm-hmm. when Karate decided that there needed to be no witnesses. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Garcia set off the fire extinguisher for funs is a lot. Anyway, to me, how come this crime was fun for them? They were oh, having a good time. Huh.
2: Oh, like party, yeah. like confetti. Yeah. They like, also, woo! another thing
1: that they did was pour soda over one of the computers. Like, why? Oh, for yeah. no reason, you yeah. know? Yeah, just being they were just bad. just having fun. Um, yeah, it's our AM gang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, right? the After yeah. Midnight gang. Yeah. So um, I think someone needs really needs to make this story into a Netflix series because it would make a really good one.
2: It would make a really good one. And I also think it would make a difference – in
1: for justice for, for duty. Jonathan duty. Yeah.
2: Yeah. For, yeah. Somebody I'm, needs so to bring that,
1: this case to light more yeah. light to it. Yeah. yeah.
2: And I think frame did an excellent job. I think that book did an excellent job. Maybe our show <laughs> will help,
1: yeah. um, but, um, needs but to I make think more Netflix people series. talking about yeah. it.
2: Yeah. Netflix will yeah. do it. Come on, Netflix. <laughs> We've been telling y'all for years you need to make shows about all this stuff. Um, uh, I uh, I couldn't agree with you more, Beth. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your memories at the right. time. Um, I, does anything stick out? Well, it was shocking.
1: Fucked up. Yeah, it was shocking. <laughs> yeah. um, I just kind of at the time just took it as they told it to me. I thought Jonathan Duty was guilty. You yeah, did at, at the, time. the time. Interesting. Yeah,
2: yeah because that's, that's what they told me. Right. Right. Um yeah the I, I think the media also has a little hand to play in how this story oh um, yeah the sure. legs that this story initially,
1: got initially i was going to do this um this episode on Jonathan Duty and then I started reading the story. I'm like, holy shit, this is yeah. fucking crazy. And he's not even guilty. So Duty <laughs> yeah. that's
2: what I when, I when I started researching. Yeah. It.
1: yeah. And, uh, but a lot of the articles that I read, um, and, and there was some, there was a, uh, I think it was a, can't remember what the name of the video was, but they all, they they're all like yeah yeah these two guys did it together because they were in the rotc and they were playing army man and all this stuff and um just the narrative yeah, the narrative was wrong, wrong. yeah and so mm-hmm. when i listened to the podcast framed um my uh-huh. mind was completely blown
2: mine too when you told when you told me about it i was like what a whole series yeah yeah uh and it was oh they my gosh! Did so it, it, it was much breathtaking
1: work on this.
2: Yeah, an amazing yeah. job. And I and I I loved the flex at the beginning where he was like. I've read every piece of paper about this case, heard every podcast, seen every documentary, and there's a lot of misinformation yeah. out there. So if you want to know the truth, here yeah. it is. I was like, oh, cracking my knuckles, <laughs> buckling up.
1: <laughs> yeah, and even uh, before really he revealed uh, towards the end that he thought Jonathan Duty was innocent um i don't remember mm-hmm. how many episodes in i was but he's just going through the facts he's just telling us the facts yeah. that's how he does it he yeah. just he gives mm-hmm. you the facts he gives you the facts and then at the very end he tells you his opinions and as he's going through all of the um evidence i'm like mm-hmm. wait a minute it oh yeah I, I, like, episode
2: one or yeah. two raleigh, i was like raleigh duty guy raleigh
1: Karaata Chia has to be the one who did it yeah. with Alex Garcia yeah. yep yeah
2: I could not agree more and I'm I'm really glad that podcasts exist yeah. um I love I, that's the part I love about true crime when ra- wrongs um, are brought to right um I uh, yes Netflix please <laughs> Beth I agree. also I don't think you can talk about this story and not talk about race culture and the fuckery of the police, which um, I I think I've made my feelings about um, throughout this entire storytelling. Um, But the cultural competency and the lack thereof of not only the police, but the media, I think plays a part in it. Um, I, I remember seeing a a YouTube video when the four women on, on the jury against duty read all of the counts, guilty, 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 guilty. And she was a white yeah. woman. And I was wondering, was there anybody of color of or anybody of Thai descent, anybody with knowledge of not a non-American culture and, and customs who was on that jury? And if there wasn't, I'm pissed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, so I don't think d- uh, duty did it. Maricopa County juries tend to be white and very old people. Um, so I would not be surprised if it was an a white right, right. jury. Also, um, Garcia clearly Garcia and Carrotucci. Kat- Katar- 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 what was his last Carrotucci? <laughs> Carrotucci Ka- were clearly murderous, like bad of a dudes. Bitches. Yeah, they
1: were very bad, and they were really bothered. Yeah, they were already so bad.
2: Already, yeah. yes, and um, I. It really bothered me that Garcia got less time than yeah. duty. It also it's kind of telling that um Kawarata Chia died in a really horrific way um he must have spent a really long time self medicating maybe he maybe he at some point felt guilty for what happened to Garcia yeah, and Duty because of him yeah. and just succumbed to, he could have just told the truth, but instead succumbed to um, substance use and um, a really horrific death yeah. is what yeah. it sounds like. Um, I'm pissed that the Tucson Four had their lives turned upside down and were jailed for several months. Um, the, the, the bungles and the injustice on the part of the the state uh, is criminal. No. They need to go to jail. No. Send, a, send those to det- <laughs> to jail uh and uh, i'm even more pissed that this all led us to get stuck with joe motherfucking our pile know, for so I long know. which wasn't any no. better you're right yeah. with the the furnace to the fire i don't know but it was all <laughs> bad uh, uh so man this this yeah so many twists and turns um, this was a whiplash of a yeah. case, but I'm really glad we covered it. Thank you, Beth, for um y- you your the, your kick-ass research oh, on this welcome. case. <laughs> um, I'm just i I'm just I'm just happy to yeah. be here. Uh, so, <laughs> so now we're gonna get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. And uh, guess what?
2: We don't have anything today, but I think it's times like these that we need to reach out to our fruities and tell us if you have any tips on how um, not to get murdered. If you have any um, close calls or um, if you know of somebody who... um, uh, uh has uh a good uh how not to get murdered story or tip, give us a call 602-935-6294 <laughs> or get at us on social media. We um would love to hear from you on your thoughts yeah. on on what to Definitely. do to be safer. Um because this is a true crime community. Amen. Yeah. Um so now it's like a good time to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by or about any people of color lgbtq any marginalized or oppressed groups um disabled people's anybody um and uh any true crime goodies i just wanted to shout out the podcast framed which we already did the most comprehensive telling of this case of all time it's true um <laughs> <laughs> uh and um this new true crime podcast the shadow girls Ooh. about the victims of the green river oh, wow. killer wow I'm hooked Yeah, and uh, I didn't know anything about the Green River killer. Uh, apparently it, he killed a lot of people. Yeah. But this <laughs> well, is, what do you this know? Is, this, do you know? <laughs> Would you believe it girls? Uh, this is just about the victims, which I think is a, an incredible um, uh, way to tell, tell the, the story. story. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. It's, yeah, it's, it's uh, awesome. really well told, well produced and it's wherever you get your podcast. There's four episodes nice. out as we were recording this. All
1: right. What do you got? Subscribed. So I wanted to shout out the Gilded Age on HBO. It just started. There's okay. one episode out. It's by okay. the same guy who brought us Downton Abbey, which I loved. So I know. Oh. I know my nerd is coming out.
2: Surprise, surprise! I not actually, interested. I hate period yeah. pieces, but I love. <laughs> I loved
1: *Downton*. Oh, did you really? Loved it. Oh wow. Yes. Okay. Loved so, so you're going to love <laughs> *The Gilded Age*. It's very similar. Okay. Okay. And it has a woman of color as one of the main characters. Get out of here! No, it's true. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And also, Christine Baranski from The Good Fight is, is in it, and I love her. So,
2: Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it's on HBO. It
1: just started. There's one episode out right now. Uh, by the time this airs, there'll probably be like three episodes out.
2: Okay, cool, cool, cool. So that is the Framed podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, the Shadow Girls podcast, and also the Gilded Age on HBO.
1: There you go. Well...
2: That's it for today. Until next time, Beth, where can the people
1: find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website.
2: That's right. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.